it's a cold and miserable day outside here in Canberra. And while I'm shivering inside with my electric blanket, the little bees are outside working away as always. <laughs> I never really gave it a lot of thought, but bees have a sense of smell. I guess they must do to visit all those flowers. Well, uh, joining me today on Fuzzy Logic is uh, Dr. James Hayes, who has a particular interest in odours and including bees. And uh, Dr. James Hayes is a research fellow at the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of New South Wales and the Odour Lab. Yes. Hello, James. Hello. <laughs> Now, bees, tell me about bees' smell. Okay, so um, bees probably have the best sense of smell that we've come across. They're much better than dogs. Um, as far as we're aware, they're, they're probably in the higher echelons when it comes to insect olfactometry, uh, olf olfaction, I should say. In, in this sort of area, we call it olfaction to distinguish between what... Like, so you have the old joke, um, uh, how did, um, my dog lost his nose, how does he smell? Terrible. Um, so we say olfaction when we mean your ability to detect odors and things like that. Bees are incredible. They can smell pheromones from other bees, uh, from uh, unimaginable distances. They use their sense of smell to detect flowers and things like that. And we've actually had some sort of um, engineering abilities and experiments with them to make them actually quite useful for us. Before we go into the engineering side of it, I just wanted to compare, you said the bees are much better at smelling than dogs, which is quite astonishing. Yeah. You've written a column for us in uh, the Canberra Times uh, yes. about the dog sense of smell. And I think you said it was something like two, was it 200 million uh, sensor neurons in the dog? Okay, so the centered neurons, we call them olfactory receptor neurons. Basically what happens is that whenever you um, smell something through your nose, there's a layer of mucus and above that is like a sheath. I like to think of it almost like a keyboard almost. So um, you have a particular chemical, it goes towards a particular part of your nose and it hits one of these olfactory receptor neurons, the, the smell neurons, and it elicits a signal. And it's kind of like a piano keyboard. So, for instance, if you smell uh, lemon, that will hit a G note on, on, the, uh, on your olfactory piano, if you, if you want to call it that. Dogs have a much bigger piano <laughs> to work with. So does that mean there's an array of effectively chemical sensors, I guess? Yes. And each component of the odour of, of the whatever it is uh, bonds or binds temporarily to, to that? Yeah. that right? yeah, that's right. So um, you, you have a particular chemical. By their nature, they have to be volatile, which means that it'll hit that particular olfactory receptor neuron and then a signal will go to, it's a part of your, it's debatable as to whether it's a part of your brain, but it's called the olfactory bulb. It passes through a bit of skull. Look, the architecture to me is very fascinating. The reason, for instance, why perfumes and things are so important to us is that uh, back in the heyday when we used a large proportion of our brain for olfactory uh, processing, 
uh, that signal now goes to, through all the emotional cortices of our brain, which is why perfume is so important uh, as an example. Ah, so smell is, your sense of smell is so evocative. And, you know, when you go into a room and, and maybe there's a, the, like the lanolin smell or, or the perfume <laughs> and you go, ah, oh, and, you, and you're kind of transported back to the days visiting grandma's house. Yes, that's, uh, that's a very unique part of memory called olfactory memory. And before, um, so I'm just expecting a child in, uh, this month and that child will have an olfactory memory that predates all other memories. So before we can verbalize, before we have the ability to visually consider things, we start off with our olfactory memory. For children, that's typically the smell of their mother, the smell of breast milk, the smell of amniotic fluid. And those things will, those memories are far hardier than verbal or visual memories. They'll last a lot, lot longer. So for instance, everyone can get an idea of when they smell strawberries, when the first time they smelt strawberries was. And those memories are very important. Um, there is, I know, some work uh, with Alzheimer's patients using olfactory uh, stimulus to kind of jog their memory into having a better quality of life. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're very, very powerful things, but they're, they're also quite subtle in a way because our ability to engage with our olfactory memories, our sense of smell is something that's very... Um, it's hard to do. Like, we don't really have the language to do it, in a way. Yeah, because I think what you're saying is it goes straight into the primitive part of the brain. Yeah. And uh, writing columns for science columns, I just learned a new word a while ago, which is kind of appropriate today because it's been raining outside. <laughs> the smell of rain, it's got even got its own name. Pet yes, petrichor. petrichor. Yeah. Petrichor. Uh, that is a whole bunch of little microbes jumping up from the asphalt and they're all breeding with each other. And as they breed, they form volatile organic compounds and that's what we detect. So it's a combination of uh, just a pure uh, chemical reaction and, and a biological process going on there. Yeah, um, every biological process produces volatile organ organic compounds most of them we can smell and detect. Um, some dogs can probably smell more than we can. Bees can smell more than that. But every biological process produces different volatile organic, organic compounds. And that distinguishes the different scents, uh, the different okay. smells, I should say. Okay, this really kind of makes sense when you look at it from the point of view of evolutionary biology, does it yeah. not? Because... I'm thinking of some primitive organism floating around in a primordial soup and there's a chemical wafting by and that chemical means uh, something good to eat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe something else has eaten and it's looking for you to eat. Yeah. <laughs> something good. Yeah. So it's okay. So it really goes way back into our primitive past. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to imagine how a bee, a little thing, so it's, and its brain must be tiny, right? How do they fit all of that into that tiny space? It's uh, it's it's very hard to understand. The, one of the main challenges with any sort of sense of smell research is that very often these creatures uh, they exceed our analytical capability at the moment. 
so at, at the Oda lab, we work with something called a gas chromatographer, uh, mass spectrometer, olfactometer. Um, and they're some among the best in the world. And even then just the human sense of smell, um, is enough to sort of, um, supersede what these uh, devices are capable of measuring. So this, this, this machine, right? This yeah. gas chromatograph. Yeah. Chromatography. Yeah. yeah. How big is it? Uh, it's quite big. Um, it's about the size of a couch, I suppose. It's made of different sections. You start off with the gas chromatograph and what that does is you put an odor sample through it. It separates that odor sample into its constituents. And then from that flow, it splits it to a mass spectrometer. The mass spectrometer will tell you what particular chemicals are within that sample. Reality's lessons exploring my prison until I'm let out. That journey you call me quick. That journey you call my name. That journey you have its way and have me wandering all my days. That journey you call me quick. That journey you call my name. That journey you have its way and have me wandering all my days. Traveling east and west on every known highway. South to North, carrying that torch until I'm old and gray.
beat up Sometimes I'm the beater Sometimes man my feet hurt from walking so long Sometimes I'm defeated Sometimes I get cheated Sometimes I just need it Cause sometimes I'm wrong So the question's repeated Why even try when it's rocks in the road Potholes in the lawn But victory sweeter when obstacles either A size that the crushed on the way to the throne So I'll go on my own Got faith in the road I can share that control Cause I'm never alone I hear the creator speak to me through whispers on winds The voices of friends and through both I listen to omens The things that he shows me The shows that he knows me And helps me along And follow him closely Where he goes mostly Guiding my path on his map till I'm gone That journey you call me quick That journey you call my name That journey you have its way And have me wondering all my days That journey you call me quick That journey you call my name That journey you have its way And have me wondering all my days And when they lay me down To rest in my earthly grave And when they lay me down Navigate that big sky away But in the meantime I got my duty in the meantime, in between time I got to do this in the meantime, in between time I'm pushing through this in the meantime, in between time I got my duty, I got my We were talking about the grass chromatograph version of the uh, thing that detects smell and yes. comparing that to the bee sense of smell and how the bee manages to cram that fantastic capability into such a small space. Yes, it's tremendous. It, um, it really is something that, uh, at, at least in my research, we don't fully understand their abilities extensive. I suspect that the specific odors that they're looking at, the, the range of their odors is quite small, but their sensitivity to those odors is extreme. Ah, mm. so actually what I get from that is there's a breadth of smell and a depth of smell. So yes. there's a range of things that can be smel smelt, and then there's a sensitivity of that. Is that right? Yes, um, that would be my best understanding of it. W with honeybees, we've looked predominantly at how to improve hive health and things like that by analysing the odours that come out of the hives and detecting to see whether they have a particular disease or something like that and whether that can be remedied. Um, so the, the olfactory ability of bees, I have a little bit of an understanding of. My boss, he always says that the best talk that he ever went to was a presenter talking about honeybees and using them for explosive detection in airports. And what they would do, they would train a particular compound found in explosives and they would have the bees in these little cages, essentially, and they would measure the length of the bee's tongue to pick up, that was picking up the odorant, and that would allow them to kind of 
move across around the airport to find out where the explosive was. And that's, that's kind of impressive. That's something that dogs often struggle with. That's so, wonderful. So the yeah. behavioural cue that they were using to see whether the, the bee can smell a particular thing is whether they're poking their tongue out, right? Yeah, yeah. They, wow. they, would, they would use a, um, a fast shutter camera to pick out how far the tongue would go out. And I believe it was the longer the tongue was out of the bee, the closer they were to the particular... Well, that's like being around uh, beer. Yeah. (laughs) Now, actually, one of the the first interviews I ever did on Fuzzy Logic, which you remind me of, and this is a little bit of left field from bees, but there is the European wasps. Oh, yes. Now, uh, uh, Phil Spradbury was a local wasp control person, and he was doing uh, research into uh, the European wasp. And I remember him telling me that he was looking for a way to attract the wasp and then they could use it for a, a trap. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so and I forget the details. This is a while ago. He had a chemist uh, and maybe they were using a device like the one you've described uh, and they were trying to find which was the active compound that stimulated the wasp. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, fascinating. And, and uh, I think there's another pheromone or something that they emit if the hive is being attacked. Yes. Uh, that's an alarm signal. And I would imagine the bees do the same thing, right? They do do the same thing. Um, the most famous case is uh, Japanese honeybees when they're, defending themselves against giant hornets. So giant hornets, they're not very nice insects. They'll go into a honey bee hive. They'll steal everything. They'll kill everyone. And uh, obviously that's not very good for the Japanese honeybee. But what happens is if you have a, they, the hornets have a scout and that scout uses pheromones and detects the honey bee hive via that way. As the scout comes in to investigate, the bees will all release a pheromone that innovates the whole hive. And what they actually do is bundle on top of the hornet and um, cook it to death, essentially. Wow. Well, we we were talking about evolutionary biology earlier. And I can imagine there's a kind of a chemical warfare going on where the hornet tries to evade and then the bee detects a new finds a new way to detect the wasp and so on. Yeah. And I mean, this is an evolutionary advantage um, that's happened for millions of years. And that's why you don't see European honeybees in Japan because the horn, uh, they don't have that defense mechanism against the hornets. Um, and they just get wiped out every time. Really? Yep. Oh, what we need is something to get rid of European wasps because they are such a pest. Yes. They're not good. <laughs> yeah. Now you, it's curious that we're discussing detection, uh, extremely fine detection at this particular time, James. Oh, and our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Dr. James Hayes from the University of New South Wales. And uh, we're talking in a time of plague, right? Yes. And is there any possibility we could use uh, a wasp or a bee or a dog? to detect a person who is infected? Yes. um, Actually, there has been some research already conducted in that regard. Um, Dogs are usually the um, one they go with because dogs are friendly. They're easily trainable. 
we can get feedback from dogs in a much more simplistic way than you would with bees or wasps. And it has been shown to be quite promising. They're capable of detecting the virus. Again, viruses produce their own volatile organic compounds, especially when they're interacting with the human body. And that's kind of the precedent for not just detecting COVID-19, but cancers, diabetes. There's been a lot of research into having dogs in hospitals and being able to detect specific diseases with um, remarkable accuracy, provided all the all the uh, variables are controlled. So we've given the dog training. Yeah, so how advanced is that? Is there any prospect or, or in fact, are there any examples of where it's actively being used at the moment? Um, at the moment, most of these tests are kind of in a pilot stage. Again, it's all, it's all very promising, but I think there's a, a predisposition, especially in Western countries, to kind of rely upon the, uh, the ivory tower science, I suppose you want to call it, where it, it, you can see it through a microscope with your own eyes and kind of um, do it that way. Whether there, there are sort of very strict programs regarding medical, medical diagnosis and dogs, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I do know that there's quite a preponderance of uh, dog owners who have diabetes that report that their dog behaves differently before they go into a hypoglycemic shock. Um, And that's also similar. One thing dogs uh, can predict and also um, provide a degree of therapy for is when their owners um, go and have epileptic fits. The dog's able to detect the epileptic fit. And they'll actually, they've been trained to position their bodies to make sure that if a person is having a seizure, that they don't damage themselves. The dog will go under their head, make sure that they're um, not hitting a hard surface or something like that. Well, dogs dogs are so amazing, aren't they? Now, our dog, uh, <laughs> he's a very cute border terrier. Oh, and he Yeah, he's extremely finely tuned to our behavior. And we're talking about psychology now, of course. And he knows when we're getting our stuff together because we're going to go out and he's very anxious about being left alone. Is there any evidence dogs can detect our mood via our smells, the smells that we emit? Um, I I would be very surprised if that wasn't the case. The way our mood changes, um, there's been research that, that has shown that dogs can identify through their sense of smell whether someone is not trustworthy. Um, <laughs> they can pick up a whole variety of things. I mean, the dog's primary sense is their nose. And um, behaviors such as fear on your part, even if, it's, even if you have fear of upsetting the dog, that will probably upset the dog because they can pick it up regardless. So, yes, they can detect mood through your sense of smell. There's, there's no doubt. <laughs> well, they, they are amazing. And what a, uh, what a wonderful example of teamwork. Uh, what's the term in biology where two species collaborate? Uh, the oh, uh, symbiosis or commensal? Mu- mu- mutual uh, symbiosis, yeah. Yeah, so humans, with our other abilities combined with the dog, makes us pretty formidable in the environment. Yes. (laughs) Now, speaking of the environment, with our guest today, who's Dr. James Hayes from the University of New South Wales, the odour lab. We're talking odours, dogs, 
be smells and uh, your work also includes things that affect the community right so yes. tell me a little bit about some of that okay so a lot of my work is involved in looking at the ways in which communities can be affected by uh, what we term malodors so odors which are undesirable to be around one of my main concerns is ensuring that if malodors are within a, within a community, within a, within a neighborhood or something like that, what the impact of that is for uh, people. So there's a, a very sort of hotly debated topic at the moment as to whether odors themselves cause people to be ill or whether it's something in a person's psychology which makes them believe that they're ill and in turn makes them ill, if that makes sense. So, for instance, uh, the best example is, let's say that you hard boil an egg um, and you crack open that egg um, after you've hard boiled it, you'll smell that eggy smell. Now, that eggy smell is hydrogen sulfide. That level of hydrogen sulfide um, from an egg is something that you'll be quite comfortable with. But that same uh, concentration of hydrogen sulfide if someone feels that it comes from like a nearby uh, junkyard or uh, wastewater processing plant um, is liable to register a complaint um, by that member of the community. Oh, so that's the context as well. So you might actually like the sense of very faint waft of a boiled egg, but not from the Farm. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's not even necessarily a case of if you like it or not, but whether you can tolerate it or not. If, you, if you're comfortable with uh, peeling a hard-boiled egg, but you're not comfortable with the same amount of odour coming from somewhere else, then yes, it's, it's very contextually dependent. Um, that's not to say that I, I think that someone who makes that complaint is, it's not a valid complaint because it is, because it's upsetting the person. But I'm very interested in how these environmental modulators of odour cause a person or cause a community to become upset, what triggers that community to become dissatisfied with their local industrial processing area, um, and what steps we can take to make sure that the community remains satisfied. Oh, okay. Can you make a kind of a score sheet or something like that that says, that predicts how people will respond to an odour in a of a particular sort in a particular place um at, at the extremes we can so extraordinarily high levels of a bad odour typically um with most sort of industrial processes that'll be hydrogen sulfide or um, what we call volatile sulfur compounds um at high levels everyone's going to complain um at, and at extremely low levels no one will complain but as yet we don't have a model to say why one neighbour will have no complaints and the other neighbour will be extraordinarily upset by um, an odour incursion. Oh, it's, it's part of that cultural. So when I visited my neighbours and they've got really, really strong cooking smells, <laughs> and uh, which is okay, I guess, but in a house it's a bit strong. So how much of it is cultural? There is, a, there is a fair amount which is cultural depending upon the odorant. <laughs> so, um, uh, for instance, they ran a, a smell test just to see how people could detect different odorants across the world. They found that many Asian countries, uh, the people there have a very hard time smelling anything aniseedy, um, like licorice and things like that, simply because it's not a part of their culture. 
And Western cultures, we're very comfortable with milk smells, but someone who comes from a different culture, apparently we smell like sour milk quite often. So there's a lot of habituation there. With regards to the kind of odors that I'm looking at, it's, it's not as often to be cultural. These are odors which all humans, through either evolutionary biology or just general distaste because they're not in, within foods and things like that, everyone's going to be upset with. Hydrogen H2S, hydrogen sulfide, or uh, we call it sulfur as well, that in uh, significant concentrations is very dangerous. And so there's an evolutionary advantage that we detect it very quickly and very... I, um, I guess they're also associated with decomposition and eating yes. rotting food is generally not good for humans, right? Yeah, <laughs> generally not, no. So it's an aversion. It, it generates an aversion because don't eat that egg that's been sitting or whatever it is that's been sitting on the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's not universal. Um, uh, have you heard of sustroming? Okay, so stroming is a um, is a delicious fish meal that comes from uh, the Nordic countries. Uh, they get rotting fish, they put it in a tin. That tin will expand with the pressure of H2S with uh, with sulfur in it. They have to pierce that tin um, underwater to make sure that the odor doesn't go everywhere, and they have it as a part of their picnic. It's been very important legislatively. Airlines uh, will not allow you to fly if you carry it with you. And there's been plenty of cases where someone has opened to a stroming or there's been a leak and apartments have been evacuated. Ah, and when I interviewed your uh, colleague, Dr. Ruth Fisher, recently, she talked about durian, which also yes. has a really strong smell. And uh, some people like it, I gather, and I don't think I've smelt it, but it's apparently... Yeah, it smells like rotting fruit, essentially. But that's just the surface. Once you cut through it, it's actually quite pleasant. Um, Interestingly enough, they made a non-odorous durian, and it hasn't proven to be very popular because people associate that rotting smell with the smell of durian, and uh, that what reminds them of uh, their childhood memories. Now, in your research, you're studying how people respond to odors. Uh, how have you found that useful? In how people respond to odors? or Yeah. So, for example, if there's a plant somewhere or there's a sewage line, and does, is there an application that allows authorities or the operators of that facility? Yes. So, Australia, in some ways, is a little bit behind the rest of the world when it comes to odor legislation. In uh, European countries, they have something called the VDI 3883, and that basically says at particular concentrations for particular durations of time, uh, this amount of odor is acceptable, depending on the, depending on the, uh, the chemical. Um, and there's a similar thing in the United States. Now, we have that to a degree in Australia, but the level of nuance um, still needs to be defined. So... Uh, I think you would appreciate that you can smell chocolate to a particular concentration, but if you're smelling chocolate compared to, say, rotting eggs or rotting cabbage, uh, people are going to be a little bit more comfortable uh, with uh, chocolate. Uh, Now, does that swing us back to our earlier discussion today here on Fuzzy Logic with Dr. (laughs) Dr. James Hayes? 
yeah, from the University of New South Wales, uh, to the detector. So if there's legislation, then that makes me think, how do you, can you put a number on a smell? And is that the device that you were talking about earlier, the chromatograph? Um, so uh, if shorthand, it's a GCMSO. Um, I can give you some more details. Um, so currently within Australia, the GCMSO is something that we don't use for legislative purposes. We're at the level where what you have is um, what you call uh, qualified odour testers. These are people who have been tested and they have an average sense of smell. You might have 10 or 20 or as many people as you can get uh, within the confines of time and cost. And you have them detect a particular odorant and um, you measure something called an odor unit. And through testing uh, this group of average sniffers, you can establish the number of odor units a particular uh, production might emit. And you compare that number of odor units to what's legislatively acceptable. Odor units, it's a, it's a little complicated. Essentially what you have is uh, a sample of the odor and you have either nozzle A or nozzle B. And the number of odor units is the number of times that concentration can be divided until the person can't distinguish between whether the odor exists or just it's plain air, if that makes sense. So you might have a concentration of, let's say, 20 parts per billion of sulfur, you'll divide that into 10 parts per sulfur by mixing it with air. The person's still able to detect it between, between uh, nozzle A and nozzle B, and you keep dividing it until they can't detect it any further. And the number of times that's divided equals the number of odor units that particular uh, environmental source emits. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a highly subjective thing too. So would you say that maybe it's actually an advantage that we're using people as the gauge of the strength of smells rather than a machine because it's a human after all who we care about who is uh, complaining or not complaining about the smell i find it very important because it improves the ecological validity of whatever we're testing if we're making sure that humans are testing something that's designed to protect humans then that makes a lot of sense to me that being said, the sense of smell for most people is quite complicated. So there's what we call the tip of the nose phenomenon, where you smell something, but you can't quite place what it is. You can't quite describe what it is. And again, that's a product of our language, not being able to describe odors in a particularly effective way. It also has to do with the fact that we don't tend to pay that much attention to what we're sniffing. So... And uh, of course, the other thing is you have a lot of people within a population where their odor sensitivity varies quite a lot. And we don't really want those people for testing. We need people who are very standard in the way that they detect their odors. So we make sure that we get very standard odor sniffers from the community. And that way we can keep everything sort of uh, nice and comparable between different odors and make sure it's legislatively acceptable that's a big process that's a hard process and you have to train these people to make sure that they're doing the right thing in that regard 
And most people in the community won't have that kind of experience. Well, what, what strikes me about what you've just described is it's a community process as well. Yes. There's not some people with white lab coats coming out with some mysterious looking device. These are actual humans who are reporting to other actual humans yes. about what they experience <laughs> and it gives some kind of level of objectivity to that. Yeah. The, 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 the GCMSO itself I mean, I'm, I'm trained in it, and that's another level of training in order to use that effectively. That's, that doesn't measure odor units. That looks at the qualities of the environmental odor. So we're able to separate and say, okay, this particular component smells of rotten cabbage. This particular component smells of limonene. An example is in the past that we used to smell different components of wastewater and biosolids, and you can say, this particular part is the sulfur. This particular part is the limonene from uh, dishwashing liquid and other uh, cleaning agents that will run down the pipes and we can pick that up. This particular part is a bubble gum. We don't know what this is. It's something that uh, might be important, but it's very faint, but everyone's picking it up. So there's a lot of subjectivity. That needs to be translated and interpreted uh, very carefully. Yes, because we don't have the language for... We can't convert a lot of these things into words and we can say that's a raspberry or <laughs> we, we give analogies, but we don't have a really definitive way of describing smells. of. We can't describe a chemical signature that our, that our we, noses are detecting. Yeah. So the GCMSO does contribute to something that we call odour wheels. And these odour wheels are, and maybe Ruth talked about them, they're successive building blocks for trained panelists and trained members of the community to establish where that chemical odor might come from. And it starts off with very, very basic descriptors, and then it branches out as best as you can encourage the participant after training to help identify what that odorant might be. And that's probably our most sophisticated level of analysis that we have at the moment. Now, a question left field, but also topical right now. And there's evidence, I understand, that the COVID-19 is affecting people's sense of smell. Yes. I know it's probably very early to comment on that, but do you have any thoughts about why that is? Um, I'm not necessarily surprised. COVID is essentially a respiratory disease and there's lots of reports of it being a dry cough. So as we were talking about previously, you have olfactory uh, a mucus layer and then the olfactory receptor neurons. If anything mucks around with that mucus layer, you tend to have olfactory, let's call it disturbance. So for instance, if you have the flu, you've got a very clogged up nose the chemicals that elicit odor, odor reactions, they can't pass through. If you have a very dry nose, that dries out the olfactory receptor neurons, meaning that they don't work as well as what they should. COVID-19 is, seems to me to be a very serious respiratory disease that dries you up quite aggressively. And that, what that is doing is essentially rendering those olfactory receptor neurons inert. I've also heard that COVID is reducing your sense of taste and that is astonishing to me. That is, a, that is a very different thing. Your sense of taste, that is to say, salt, sweet, bitter, umami, those are actually clusters of very different neurons on your tongue. And for it to be drying out and affecting those um, that severely, that is remarkable. I'm, I'm quite surprised that it's able to do that, even if it is a very serious respiratory disease. 
Olfactory receptor neurons, um, they're the only neurons in the body that constantly regenerate. I understand environmental and common things happening all the time that causes you to lose your sense of smell, to lose your sense of taste. That's, that's remarkable. So these neurons are getting a fairly big workup. Maybe they're fairly fragile because, well, you say they have to be replaced continuously. Yes. So maybe they get damaged in the process of, of sensing yeah, they have to all the time because all the chemicals that they're detecting are volatile. They're constantly changing their odors. Uh, they will constantly bash up against, I suppose, those neurons and uh, cause them to not do their job and they have to get replaced. There's an excellent research group led by McKay Sim in, um, down south and they actually take out those neurons because they regenerate and they're able to look at a lot of different uh, mental issues and impairments that people might have by merely looking at these neurons. What you can also do, because it's a, it's a neuron-based experience, you can have people have uh, smell tests and that can help to diagnose particular mental ailments they might be experiencing. There was a research paper that I read a little while ago and depending on a person's reaction to a suite of odorants like peppermint and strawberry and things like that, you could distinguish whether this person was suffering from uh, Asperger's or uh, mild autism. Um, and it was able to do it uh, predictively a little bit better than um, just people observing the person. So it, it does have quite a bit of power in that regard. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. Now I have an Asperger in the family, so <laughs> uh, I don't suppose there's the test at home kit. But uh, well, you can probably make one to a certain extent. Um, I can give you the I can give you the uh, research data if you like. The odors themselves aren't remarkable; they're everyday odors. Um, but the way in which that person's brain processes and gets an impression of those odors is uh, measurably different to somebody else. Well, that kind of, that's amazing, isn't it? Because, and that really reinforces our opening comments today here on Fuzzy Logic uh, about just how deeply into the brain the sense of smell penetrates. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, one myth uh, before we wind up that uh, I don't know if it's a myth, but I, I read recently that it was, and you mentioned the sensors on the tongue and you said clusters of neurons, right? Mm -hmm. And according to this thing I saw on the web, uh, it's a myth that we have sensitivities on different parts of the tongue to the different tastes. Now, that surprised me because it's always been uh, – well, I've always read that you have the sweet zone and the sour zone is umami and, and so on. Uh, have you heard about this? Yes, I have. And they're right. It is a myth. They are all there on every part of the tongue. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pun uh, bitter, pungent, astringent. No, I sorry, I'm just bringing it up. Taste isn't my, isn't my forte, but I have a little bit of an understanding about it. Uh, yes, that's true. The, you have uh, bundles of these neurons and they are throughout the tongue. However, there is uh, another interesting fact that you might like that can kind of replace your previous one. We don't know how we detect salt. We have a very poor understanding. We don't have the, for all the other ones, we can assign a particular, within these clusters of neurons, we can assign where we're detecting sweet, where we're detecting umami. We don't know how we're doing salt. We've got some ideas, but nothing set in stone yet. Wow. <laughs> that's, 
that's now that's really remarkable, isn't it? Because salt is a really good thing at facilitating the movement of electrons. So yes. you thought it'd have a really powerful effect as soon as it applies. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we should do an ask fuzzy on this one. What do you think, James? Well, we could. Um, I probably wouldn't be the best person to ask, but um, in my opinion, it's got something to do with the fact that we constantly have a salty taste in our mouth all the time. So you have uh, habituation and adaptation. In this case, it's an adaptative uh, concept. And you can try this out at home yourself. If you spend, let's say, 30 seconds or so just scraping your tongue with uh, obviously something extraordinarily safe to make sure that you're not hurting yourself, if you do that for a little while, get rid of all the saliva around your tongue and then leave it, there'll be a very brief burst of uh, saltiness from the saliva and then it'll go away. And that's because saliva inherently has uh, quite a bit of salt in it, but then we adapt to it very quickly. Ah, that's, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. Uh, I think maybe just to wrap up, I, I would like to recount a, an email conversation I had with you earlier, uh, James. And that was, uh, we wash our dog, the border terrier Oscar. Yes. That I mentioned earlier with a dog shampoo and it's not a particularly strong smell to me, but I can certainly tell when he's been washed apart from the fact that he looks all fluffy like a furball. <laughs> but to me, it's a mild perfume, but to him it must be really strong. And what's his attitude to that going to be, do you think? Okay, so um, dogs are very, very complicated to study for a whole heap of reasons that we had on the column. We have a sneaking suspicion that dogs are able to selectively pick out which uh, odours they want to detect, much in the same way that if you're in a room with a uh, ticking clock, you can kind of ignore that sound and focus on something else. We think dogs can do the same thing with odours. Whether they detect the same concentrations of those chemicals with the same level of intensity compared to humans, we just don't know. I suspect it is quite different. So the dog's probably fine with it. The dog's probably not going to enjoy it to begin with, but then they'll be able to selectively say, no, I don't want to sniff that anymore. So, right, they just filter out like the crying baby in midnight when you've got to get up. But, oh, no, I can't hear yeah. any baby. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, can't hear you anymore. I've decided not to bother. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's probably a good thought on which to end our conversation. <laughs> uh, our guest today on Fuzzy Logic, Dr. James Hayes, a research fellow at the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering, the Odor Lab at the University of New South Wales. Thank you for your time today on Fuzzy Logic, James. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, lovely to be here. <laughs>